Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So tonight we're talking about the doctrine of adoption. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 30, where we've gone every week talking about the order of our salvation. Romans 8, 30. You probably should have it memorized by now, maybe. So there's an order that Paul gives here. It's not a comprehensive order, but it does let us know... um, some general aspects of our salvation. For those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, last week we looked at justified. And then the next verb in the verse is glorified, which is in the future. So there's a lot of things about our salvation that happen between justification and when we go to heaven. And so tonight we're going to talk about the doctrine of adoption The doctrine of adoption is very closely related to the doctrine of justification. So let's just remind ourselves what we talked about last week with justification by faith alone. When you place your faith in Christ, all of your sins are credited to Him. And then when you place your faith in Christ, all of His righteousness is credited to you. So God can then declare you to be legally not guilty before his throne of holiness and justice. So justification deals more with our legal standing before a holy God. We are saved from the penalty of sin. There's, lo- there's no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And these are, this is a wonderful privilege to be not guilty to have your sins forgiven, to have the imputed or or credited righteousness of Christ. But all of those things could be true, and you would still not have complete access to God. And you're like, now what do you mean, Pastor Sean, I wouldn't have access to God? Okay, I want you to think about it this way. Let's say you're guilty of a heinous crime, okay, and, and you go before a trial. The jury acquits you. You're not guilty. And the judge sentences and says, not guilty. He signed the release to get you out of prison because you've been there. He's wiped your record clean. You're no longer a criminal. The judge has ordered all of your debts to be forgiven, to be paid. You don't have to worry about any type of restitution. You're free. You're clear. You're out of prison. You're debt-free. You're no longer guilty in the eyes of the court. And that's wonderful. But your only relationship with that judge is that of a judge. He's done some wonderful things for you. He's, he's, he's declared you not guilty, but you have no personal relationship with that judge. You're technically free and not guilty, but you have no relationship with that judge. It's not like the judge is going to invite you into his home after he's released you and say, hey, come be part of my family. Okay. So in justification... God the judge declares us to be not guilty on account of Christ. Our record is wiped clean. We stand in the righteousness of Christ. But 
You can have your sins forgiven and wiped clean and still not be part of God's family. So adoption is related to justification in that adoption brings us into the family of God with Him as our Father. It's one of the highest privileges of our salvation is to be able to call God our Father. Now, Adoption, so justification deals more with our legal standing before a holy God. Adoption, on the other hand, focuses more on the family status or relationship with Him as our Father and we as His children. So we are going to look in Romans chapter 8. Your Bible should be open to Romans chapter 8. We're going to backtrack into Romans chapter 8, and we are going to look at this whole concept of adoption. So justification, we are legally declared to be righteous in the eyes of the holy God because our sins have been forgiven and we've been credited with the righteousness of Christ. We are legally not guilty before God. We are declared not guilty. Adoption says that's wonderful, that's necessary, that's vitally important, but it's connected to justification and adoption takes it a little bit further and says now you can have access into God's family as a child. Not just that your sins are forgiven, not just that you stand um, not guilty before God, but that you're actually invited to be part of his family. So let's read together Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Everybody there? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So one of the key themes of adoption is being called a son of God. God. Now, J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book, Knowing God, everybody should read Knowing God. It's a Christian classic. Um, Our men have gone through that in our men's study. Um, uh, Knowing God is probably one of the better books out there that's accessible on theology and doctrine. But he says this, J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So he's arguing that you don't really understand Christianity if you don't understand what it means for God to be your father. So adoption is one of the highest privileges of your salvation. It's a privilege to be adopted into God's family, to be called a child of God and so being a child of God is a wonderful privilege it's a wonderful status but we have to ask the question what was our condition before we were justified before we were adopted into God's family okay so you've heard people say we're all God's children is that a true statement are we all God's children Let me say it differently. We're all God's creation, but we're not all God's children. 
Only those who are believers in Christ are God's children. Non-believers can't be called God's children because they're not part of His family. So what was our condition before we were in Christ, before we were saved? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And here's where I want you to focus on. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. Now what is wrath? Judgment. We were children of wrath. We were children of the devil. And it says like the rest of all mankind. All humans without Christ are under condemnation and children of wrath. And Paul says it's by nature, which means we're born that way. You come into this world as a child of wrath, not as a child of God. You're under sin, you're under the law, you're dead in your sin. You were imprisoned. You were hopeless. But, through Christ, you have not only been justified, which we looked at last week, which is a legal verdict, where God counts you as not guilty before Him, but you're also adopted into God's family with all the rights and privileges of a son or an heir. So we're not all God's children. Only those who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, who've been adopted into God's family are God's children. Now, here's an interesting thing. Why does Paul, and he does this in Galatians and he does this in Romans, why does Paul calls, uh, call us sons of God? Why doesn't he call us sons and daughters? Is he being misogynistic? Is he being um, chauvinistic? Is, it just, is Christianity just for men? Okay. Why, why are women, why, why is the word daughter not even in that language? Why is it sons? Well, Paul's not being misogynistic. Paul's not being chauvinistic. As a matter of fact, Paul's actually being kind of radical for his day. Because in Paul's day, in that ancient culture, women, or daughters especially, had no rights to inherit property. If you were a daughter, you could not inherit property. Only a son could inherit property. The son, the male son, would be the legal heir of the father's wealth and of the father's estate. And it was actually in that culture, it was legally forbidden for a woman to be an heir. You couldn't put her into your inheritance. You couldn't bequeath your land to her. It could only go to the son. So when Paul says we are sons of God, obviously he's including women in that definition but what he's doing is he's saying listen being a son of god is radical because in the culture where women had no inheritance rights i'm elevating women into this new status of actually having rights privileges of being an heir and so the original audience would have been like whoa that's unusual for women to be called sons so if you're a christian woman and you're having trouble being called a son of god because it sounds kind of weird. I'd rather be called a daughter of God. And you're a daughter of God. But I'm just saying, you miss the radical nature of Paul's statement that it would have shocked his original audience. Women in that culture would never have been called sons of God. 
Women would never be called sons of God. Gentiles would never be called sons of God. In the Old Testament, who were called the sons of God? Only the Israelites. So this is a radical statement that Paul is doing. He's including Gentiles and he's including women into being adopted into God's family. And he's using the title sons of God to show us that we have all the rights and privileges of being an heir of having the status of being a child. We're not a second-class child. We're, we're, we all have access to the Father. And Jesus says, or not Jesus, but John, in the beginning of, of the Gospel of John, John 1, 12-13, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if you... All right, so what's the order here? We talk about the order of salvation. When you are born again, when God causes you to be born again from above, He grants you the gift of faith. And when you get the gift of faith, you receive Jesus, you believe in His name. And as a result of believing in Jesus' name, what do you receive? You receive the right to become a child of God. Which, what does that assume before? You didn't have the right to be called a child of God because you were a child of wrath. It's only through trusting in Christ, it's only through receiving Christ that you get the right to be a child of God. Now, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul uses the same language that we're, see, we're seeing here in Romans about calling God our Abba, our, our Abba Father. So in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption, there's the word, as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, it's very important to understand the Trinitarian nature of adoption. Okay, so let's talk about the Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit. Which person of the Trinity adopts us into His family? The Father. Okay? Which person of the Trinity physically died on the cross? Jesus. Which person of the Trinity is given into our hearts to give us that adoption? The Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in your adoption. So the Father adopts you, but here's what happened. When Jesus died on the cross, it was an objective reality. By His blood, He purchased your adoption. He purchased you as a child. He bought you. He paid for you. He, he, you it's a bona fide reality. He secured for you that legal status of being an heir of eternal life. He purchased you. So whether you feel like it or not, because of what Christ did on the cross, you are adopted when you trust Him for salvation. It's a reality. Christ bought that for you on the cross. But it is the Holy Spirit who secures or gives us that internal subjective experience of this adoption. Okay, so... We'll talk about this in just a few moments. What has God given us in the Holy Spirit? 
Well, John 14, 16 through 17, Jesus is with his disciples. He's in the upper room. He's like, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Don't be afraid. I've got to go back to my father. But when I go back to my father, I'm going to send another helper to come. And so Jesus says, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Be with you. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. So when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is with you and he's in you. Now what? Look at your Bible there. You got Galatians on your sheet and then you got Romans right there. It says the spirit in you helps you or leads you to cry out, Abba, Father. To cry out. You see that there in Romans chapter 8? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, cry is a very interesting word that Paul uses there. It's a powerful word. It means a deep, passionate, heartfelt crying out to God. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that Jesus kind of used the same language when he was in the garden, sweating drops of blood. In Mark 14, 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, in the garden. But then he said, not my will, but yours be done. So the Holy Spirit in us leads us to cry out to God as our Abba. Now, this is not the rock group from Sweden that sings Dancing Queen, okay? That's not Abba or Abba or whatever you want to call it. Abba is an Aramaic expression. Sometimes, I mean, I don't necessarily fully agree with this. Sometimes it's been translated as Daddy or Papa. Um, it's not so much what a baby or child would call their father, but the word is really associated with intimacy. It's the most, calling God your Abba is the most intimate way you can address God as your Father. Abba, Father. Now, what happens to you experientially when you're going through hard times? When you go through suffering, when you go through pain, when you go through heartache, when you go through sickness, when you go through financial setback, when you go through relational difficulties, what's the temptation as Christians for us to start thinking? It's wrong thinking, but what's the temptation for us? God must not love me anymore. I must have fallen out of his favor. He must be mad at me. He must not love me anymore. So, when you're tempted to despair, who comes inside of you and gives you the encouragement internally to know that you truly are a child of God? It's the Holy Spirit. Now, you can objectively know in your head that Jesus died on the cross and you're a child of God. You can know that in your head. It's one thing to know it in your heart when you're going through hard times. And so that's why God has given us the Holy Spirit to live in us, to lead us, to cry out, Abba, Father, to remind us that we truly are children of God. So here's the issue. 
We are legally adopted by the Father because of the cross of Christ. It's an objective. It's once for all. It's a done deal. You are a child of God. By faith alone, in Christ alone, you are a child of God. Yet, because of the pressures of this world, the flesh, the devil, pain, sorrow, we often don't experientially feel or sense that security or assurance of God's love for us in Christ. We start thinking of ourselves as slaves instead of sons. And what did Paul say? You're no longer a slave, you're a son. So the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is instrumental in giving you that internal, and I hate to use the word feeling, but we're going to talk about it, that internal feeling or sense that you truly are a child of God. Now you are. It's not, it's not based upon your feelings whether you are or whether you aren't. You are. But our feelings and our hearts deceive us to where we can begin to doubt. Now, earlier in Romans, Paul said this in Romans 5, and he's talking about justification there in Romans 5. He says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. When you guys think of the word poured, what do you think of? Okay, it's very interesting. That word poured, if you're a Jewish person, you're reading Romans 5 and you heard the word poured, you would not think of it in a positive way. Because in the Old Testament, that word poured was used of how God poured out His wrath on the nations. The cup of His wrath. So instead of God pouring out His wrath on the evildoers, Paul turns the tables and says, no, instead, God pours out His love And who ministers to that in your heart? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit living inside of you gives you that internal work. So the Holy Spirit does this internal work to bring us assurance and comfort and confidence to both know and feel and sense, whatever word you want to use, the overwhelming love of the Father. And so when you cry out, Abba, Father, what it often is, is it's, it's an emotional, intense joy in the recesses of your heart where the Holy Spirit has reminded you that you're truly loved by God. Have you ever had those experiences where you just cried out, Father, I need your help, or Father, I, I, I'm desperate. Now you're crying out, but the Holy Spirit at the same time is giving the assurance that God hears you, God loves you, He is your Father. So, the Father is the person of the Trinity who adopts us. The Son is the person of the Trinity who purchased us. And the Holy Spirit's the person of the Trinity who gives us that assurance, lives inside of us, helps us experience the reality of that. So, how? Let's ask the question, how? How does the Holy Spirit make us aware of our adoption? The answer through this affectionate, intimate, confident access we have to, God, to the God of the universe where we can approach Him with freedom and prayer as our Heavenly Father. Here's the issue. Before you were saved, the only way you could relate to God was as a judge. A threatening judge who had every right to cast you into hell. That's the only way you could relate to God. Not as a child, but as one dead in sin 
and God is your judge. Now, what happens when you become a Christian? When you get justified, when you get adopted, is God your judge anymore? No, He's now your Father. And sadly, many Christians sometimes operate as if when they become a Christian, that they, ha- they approach God more like a judge that's going to thump them than a heavenly Father that loves them. Now, we're going to talk about discipline here in a moment. That doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline you as a father, but no Christian should ever relate to God as a judge. Your sins have been judged in Christ. You are not guilty. You are free. You have access to the throne of grace. You are a child and have the highest privilege to be able to enter into the presence of your heavenly Father. That's why Jesus says in Hebrews 4.16, not Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, I keep saying Jesus says, well, Jesus does say it, but the, the writer of Hebrews says it, let us then... With confidence do what? Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's the opposite of drawing near? Running away. What's the opposite of a throne of grace? A throne of judgment. What's the opposite of receiving mercy and grace in time of need? Receiving punishment. So, As a child of God, you have permanent access to the throne of your Heavenly Father. You can cry out, Abba. You can approach Him. You've been adopted into His family. You have assurance. You have confidence. You are adopted and you're an heir forever. Whether you feel like it or not, and when you don't feel like it, the Holy Spirit comes and gives you that internal sense that you are a child of God, and He gives you the ability to cry out, Abba, Father, in times of need. And God hears you. Now, I want to illustrate for you adoption from the Old Testament. So I need you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 48, and I'm going to give you a brief history of Genesis up to this point so that you kind of know where we're going. So, Ever, anybody remember Jacob and Esau? Okay. Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Who's the firstborn? Esau. Who's the secondborn? Jacob. Okay. What's Jacob's name when he comes out? Deceiver. Heel grabber. Con man. Okay, shyster. What's Jacob known for? Jacob is known for tricking people. So he tricked Esau out of his birthright. He tricked his uncle Laban. He's always tricking people. Okay. Now, Isaac, his dad, was blind. Remember Isaac was blind? And di- so Jacob took advantage of his blind dad by getting his dad, manipulating his dad to give him the blessing instead of Esau. So Isaac was blind. Jacob took advantage of that. And so Jacob on this path of being a con man, but then the Lord one night gets a hold of him and he wrestles with God. Remember he wrestles with the angel of the Lord? Torques his hip, pops it out of joint, walks with a limp, and God changes his name and says, your name's now Israel. Okay, so Jacob then is an old man and he has a son. How many sons does he have? A lot of sons, okay. Well, Joseph, what do they do with Joseph? Joseph is basically left for dead. He's sold unto prison. Um, But then Joseph gets elevated to be the prime minister of Egypt, right? 
And then at the end of the book of Genesis, the brothers come back. Joseph saves them. There's a famine in the land, and then um, there's allocation of the land. And so at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob is an old man. Jacob is blind. And Joseph has two sons. And Jacob is going to adopt his grandsons. And it doesn't go the way Joseph thinks it's going but it's the way that God wants it to go. So this is in the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, the grandsons of Jacob, in the blessing of them, in the adopting of them. Okay, so, so you guys caught up to where we're at now? I know that's a real brief history of Genesis, the, the life of Jacob and Joseph and his sons, but you'll get the hint. So let's look at the whole chapter. I'm just going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to go back, and I want to show you kind of some things here related to the doctrine of adoption. So Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father's ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, that's remember, Israel is the same name for Jacob. Sometimes it's interchangeable. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. <clears throat> and Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh and his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who's redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude into the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people and he shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh, 
Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. All right. What does this mean? Okay. Joseph's two sons. What are the two sons of Joseph's name? Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, let me ask you a question. Are these boys full-blooded Israelites? You may not know that. No. Joseph's wife was Egyptian. So these boys are half Egyptian, half Jewish, which is very interesting because they're part of the 12 tribes. It's very important because this is a foreshadowing of the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's plan of salvation, not just Israelites, but all peoples will be blessed through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, in verse 5, what does Jacob say to his son Joseph? He says, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Now, Reuben and Simeon were the, were the actual sons of Jacob. But what is Jacob saying? I'm going to, symbolically in a way, he's an old man, but he's like, I'm going to adopt your sons. My grandsons are going to be my sons. They're going to be part of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's interesting. Was, is Joseph one of the tribes? When you look at the 12 tribes of Israel, is Joseph one of the tribes? No, his two sons are. Technically, Jacob's grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh here. So, He's promising to adopt these two grandsons, and they're going to be part of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, notice how throughout Joseph's life, God had walked with him. You see this in verse 9. Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me that I may bless them. Okay. Now, what's the irony in this passage? What do you see? You guys tell me, what do you see in verse 10? Have we seen this before in Jacob's life? What does it say in verse 10? Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Jacob's going blind. What was the issue with Jacob's dad, Isaac? He was going blind. At that point in Jacob's life, he took advantage of his dad's blindness and tricked him. Okay, now at the end of Jacob's life, he's blind. But because he's had a transformation with Jesus i.e. the angel of the Lord that he fought with, he's blind physically, but he knows exactly what he's doing. Okay? He knows exactly what he's doing. He's going blind, but he understands God's sovereign plan. So these boys were probably not little. Some people think that J Jacob had these two, guys on, two boys on his knees, but it probably was more like he brought the boys before him and they bowed before his knees in respect, because he's probably going to put his hand, so, so picture it in your mind, the oldest son's going to be on the right hand, the youngest son's going to be on the left hand, they're going to come and bow before Jacob, Jacob's going to put his hand on the firstborn, this is what Joseph thinks, traditionally, you put your hand on the firstborn, you bless him, you adopt him, he becomes a son, you put the hand on the secondborn, bless him, adopt him, okay, so what does Joseph do? He brings the boys up in that order, right? Because he thinks, okay, firstborn here. So who's the oldest son? 
You guys read it. Who's the oldest son? It's Manasseh, right? Verse 12, Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself to the earth. And Joseph took them before Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand. So Ephraim's the young, Ephraim's over here on the left. Manasseh, the older, is over here on the right. So Manasseh's the oldest, Ephraim's the youngest. What's the traditional thing that Joseph thinks is going to happen? Manasseh's going to be blessed, the firstborn. Ephraim's going to be blessed second. What does Jacob do? He crosses his arms. Because the right hand is the most important. So instead of moving the boys, he does this. Now, Joseph's probably thinking to his dad, Dad, you're blind. You're not seeing what you're doing here. And I think Joseph, like, so Jacob does that. And what, is, what does the text say Joseph does? <laughs> like, tries to tell his dad, you're messing this up. Go, go back and read it. Here we go. Verse 14. Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he does the blessing. And then go down to verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the hand of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it to Ephraim's hand to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. So is Jacob blind to what he's doing? No. Jacob wants to make sure that the younger gets the first blessing and the older gets the second. He changes the order. Now, you may think, this is an interesting story. Okay, they get adopted into his family. What does this mean? There's some symbolism here that I want to take you through. What I want to show you are some features or blessings of, of God adopting us the way that Jacob adopted his grandsons. Okay, so here's the first. Here's the first thing that you need to think about. The Father sovereignly chose you to be adopted because of His great love for sinners. Is this the right way to do things? Crossing the hands. You've seen this in Genesis if you go back and read it. Did God choose Ishmael, the firstborn, or did He choose Isaac? He chose Isaac. Did God choose Esau, the firstborn, or did He choose Jacob? Now you may ask, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Because both of them were just as wicked. God chose Perez, the second born over Zerah. Joseph is elevated above Reuben. And Joseph is upset here that Jacob is choosing the lesser as opposed to the one that would technically deserve it. Who, quote-unquote, deserved to be chosen as the first? The oldest, because he was the oldest. And Jacob says, I'm not doing it that way. I'm going to choose the one that doesn't deserve to be chosen first, and then I'm going to bless the second. And so you have to ask the question, is Jacob clueless? No, he knows. He understands. And if you go back and you read the history of Israel, Ephraim, you just go back and read it. 
Ephraim emerges as one of the strongest of the northern tribes and overshadows Manasseh in history. So here's what Jacob understands. The text doesn't come out and say it, but you think through Jacob's life, here's what he understands. Jacob understands that God does not always do things the way humans think we should. We often want to be in the driver's seat and tell God how to order the universe or how to be fair or how to unfold his purposes. What does Joseph do to Jacob? Dad, you're not doing things right. What do we often tell God? God, you're not doing things right. Let me move your hands around and put, let me, let me tell you how to do things, Dad, Abba, Father. You're not doing the things the way I want you to do it, God. Let me, let me kind of help you out here. Don't we often play that, that game with God? And what does Jacob say? I know, I know exactly what I'm doing. And what does God say? I know exactly what I'm doing. It may not be what you think I should do or the way that you think I should do it or in the timing that you think I should do it, but I'm sovereign and I know what I'm doing. It's like the old 50s TV show, Father Knows Best. Does our father know best? Yes, he does. We, we don't, but he does. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews eleven twenty one: 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about Jacob when you get to the end of his life here. The first half of Jacob's life, he was a master manipulator. He was a con man. He was a trickster. But he had learned over time that you can't thwart God's purposes. Instead of fighting against sovereign grace, you have to surrender to it. You can fight against God's sovereignty all day long, but I'm going to tell you something, you're going to lose. You fight against God's sovereignty, you're going to lose every time. So a mark of Christian maturity is to get the point where you say, I may not understand the sovereignty of God, but I'm going to submit to it. Because I can't thwart it, and I can't stop it, and it's foolish for me to fight against it. Now, what has God done in our salvation in adoption? Did he choose us? Yes. Was it because we were all that? No. Was it because we deserved it? No. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5? Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. Now, notice He predestined us for what? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Whether you fully understand it or not, before the creation of the world, God sovereignly chose you to be His own, and He predestined you to a destination. Prede- choosing invo- What's the difference between choosing and predestination? There's a difference. Choosing means God takes you to Himself. Predestination means there's a predetermined destination. Prede- what's the destination that God predetermined for you to have? It's to be adopted. So God's plan was to choose you to himself, and then the destination was that you would be adopted into his family. So God chose you to be his own and predestined you to be adopted. So your being made a child of God and being put into his family was planned before the foundation of the world, and it was all according to God's plan. Now, this can either scare you or bring great comfort to you. It brings great comfort to me because I realize 
if it would have been a human choice, like if I were to choose God, I would never choose God because I'm sinful. And if God did choose me, it was because it was his choice to choose me and there was nothing in me that moved him to do so. Was there anything in you, holy, righteous, good, worthy, that God looked down and said, hey, I'm going to choose you? No. But he did it because he loved you. So the first thing we see in this crisscrossing is that God does things different than the way we would think. And God chose us to be adopted and predestined us to be adopted as children through His grace alone. Second thing that you see in this passage of Scripture, the Father has adopted you to be shepherded by His loving protection. I want you to notice what Jacob says in the blessing of these, these boys. Look at what verse 15 says. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Trivia question for you. Or I'll give you the answer to the trivia question. This is the very first time the word shepherd shows up in the Bible. What were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What was their occupation? Shepherds. This is the first time that not a human is acting as a shepherd, literally with sheep. This is the first time God has been called shepherd. And notice he says, God has been my shepherd all the days of my life. So let me ask you a question. What does a shepherd do? It's not a trick question. Yeah, a shepherd leads the sheep, feeds the sheep, guides the sheep, protects the sheep. What does our Father do? He leads, guides, and protects us. He shepherds us out of His love. So you've got this imagery that Jacob says, I am adopting you boys into my family I'm literally a shepherd. You're becoming part of the shepherd clan. But I want you to know who the ultimate shepherd is. The Father has been my shepherd all the days of my life. And so the ultimate shepherd is God. When he adopts us into his family, he becomes our shepherd. Now, ultimately, Jesus is the chief shepherd. But Old Testament here, this is the first time God the Father, Yahweh, the Lord, is called shepherd. And in Isaiah 40, verse 11, he, this is talking about God, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. So let me ask you another trivia question. Why does God love us as his sheep? Because God loves us as his sheep. Why does God love you? Because God loves you. You, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's simply because God does it. And so John says in John, 1 John 3, 1 through 2, see, that word see means behold or pay attention, get excited. What kind of love the Father's given to us? So what kind of love has the Father given to us? That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that they do not know him. Behold, we are God's children now, and what we will have not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. What's that love? That we should be called children of God. Why does God love us? Because He loves us. Why does God take us in as His children? Because God loves to take us in as His children. Why does God shepherd us? Because God loves to be our shepherd. Did we earn it? Did we deserve it? No. He does it because He's the good shepherd. So let's just look at some of these scriptures that talk about God providing for us, God shepherding us, God caring for us. So part of being adopted into God's family is that He's your Father, He's your protector, He's your guide, He's your shepherd. So Psalm 103, 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Good fathers, good earthly fathers, show compassion to their children. Good earthly fathers provide and protect and care for their family. And what God is saying is, as great as a human father is, the Lord is even a greater father, and He shows greater compassion to His children. It's from, greater, it's from lesser to greater. Human fathers love, to a certain extent, not perfect. Greater than that is the love of the Father towards His children. Proverbs 14.26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Now, it doesn't specifically say God's our father there, but it calls us his children. We have a strong refuge in the father. We have a refuge. We have a compassionate father. And as our loving good father, he likes to give us gifts. What does Jesus say about in Matthew 7, 11? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? God loves to give good things. Now, Matthew doesn't flesh out what those good things are, their blessings. Luke tells us a little bit more specifically what those good things are. So Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. In Matthew, it's good things. In Luke, it's the Holy Spirit. It's about the same thing. Who's the source of giving? The Father. Who does it come through? The Spirit in us that blesses us with those good things. Okay? James 1.13. I mean, sorry, 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Two things about this. Number one, He's the Father of lights. Okay, so two things about the Father of lights. Number one, every good and perfect gift comes from Him. Every gift comes from your good Father. But number two, He doesn't change. What would happen if the Father changed? If God changed His mind, if God changed His purpose, would you ever have any confidence? Do you like a person that's always changing their mind? Like at your work, you made a decision and everybody's on board and everybody's going and the next thing you get a memo the next day or an email the next day, we're changing, we're doing this. Okay, yeah, I got to catch up and the next thing you know, we're changing, we're doing, every time, every time you turn around, we're changing something. Does that give you a lot of security or stability? No. Our Father never changes and every good and perfect gift is from Him. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So God predestined you to be adopted as a child. 
God has shepherded you and will shepherd you and lead and guide you because he loves you. But there's a third aspect that we need to understand about adoption, about the fatherhood of God. Third, sometimes the father may discipline you as his child for your spiritual good. Now, this is what we don't like to hear, okay? But let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12, okay? We're going all over the the Bible. We've gone to Genesis. We, We started in Romans. We went to Genesis. Now we're going to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. And while you guys are turning there, I'm going to get some water. All right, Hebrews 12. Let's start in verse 5. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Paul quotes, or Paul, the writer of Hebrews, some think it's Paul, Spurgeon thinks it's Paul. I don't think it's Paul, but the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, he, he quotes Proverbs, but also Deuteronomy 8, 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So as a father who loves you, who has chosen you, who has predestined you, who has adopted you, he also has the right to discipline you. Now, I need to be very clear. Is there a difference between discipline and judging? Yes. As a child of God, you are not judged or under judgment. That's only reserved for non-believers. As a child of God, you will never be judged for your sins because those sins have been paid for by Christ. But you will be disciplined. So let's look at three aspects of God's discipline as our Father. Okay? The first one we see is the necessity of discipline in verses 7 through 8. What does a human father do? What does a human father have to do? If your children are misbehaving, what does a good father or mom do? Disciplines them. That could be spanking, that could be putting them in time out, that could be grounding them. However, discipline, that's a whole other discussion. But you will discipline your child if they misbehave. Okay, let's ask the question. Are there times when we as Christians misbehave and go wayward and rebel? Yes. Does God have a right to discipline us? Yes. Now, here's what the text does not say. The text does not say what the discipline looks like. We're not given details. Now, I think this is purposeful because I think it's going to be different for every believer. 
God in his providence will discipline each of his children in the sovereign way he sees fit. So it's not one size fits all discipline the same way it's not one size fits all discipline with your children. God is sovereign over how he dispenses the discipline. All we know is that he will discipline. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but there is a need for it. What's the other thing? If you're never, ever disciplined by God or, you, or you're never convicted of sin or you never st- have that struggle, then the writer says you may question whether you're truly saved. Okay? So God will discipline us if he needs to. I don't know what it looks like in every person's life. It may be different. I don't know how long it is. I don't know the extent of it. God's sovereign over that. But if, if God as your father sees you going down the wrong path and ruining your witness or doing things that are rebellious, he has every right to get you back to where he wants you because he loves you and he will discipline you. Now, there's two ways you can respond to discipline. If you have a strong-willed child, how does that child respond to discipline? They don't like it, do they? So here's the second thing we see about discipline, the right response. What does verse 9 tell us? What's the right response to God's discipline? We had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? You may not have liked getting spanked by your dad, but you respected him. In the same way, you need to respect and subject yourself to God who has right to do that. So when God disciplines us, we respectfully submit to that discipline. You don't fight against it. When you, I said earlier, when you fight against God's sovereignty, you're going to lose. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Your work has no handles. Do you as the clay have a right to tell God the potter, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? I don't, I don't like it. Don't do this. No, God has every right over his children to discipline you. And the response is, this is for my good. I need to respect what God's doing and realizing he's not doing this out of hatred towards me, but out of love towards me. What's the worst thing you can do as a parent? Not discipline your child and let them do stuff that's stupid and gets them harmed, especially when they're little. What do you do? We used to live in in Colorado Springs at my former church. We lived in a parsonage that was right next to the church. It was right north of the church. And it was on a really busy road. Black Forest Road had a lot of semis and stuff. I mean, it was like 45, but cars would drive 55. And so um, when we moved into that house, the, the deacons and elders, they, they built a fence because Aiden was like two years old. And we were a little afraid of him being that close to the, the road. Um, and so we had to tell Aiden, do not, under any circumstances, leave the backyard. It is dangerous. There are cars there. This fence is for your protection. You go outside the fence, you may get killed. Stay in the fence. Now, what's the most loving thing we did? Put up a fence and warned him, 
that he could get killed if he went outside. What's the worst thing I could have done as a parent? Oh, Aiden, you're free to do whatever you want. I know you're two years old. Just jump over the fence. Go explore the, the road. See how close you can get to the cars. Play chicken. What kind of dad would I be? You guys would turn me into social services probably. So God disciplines us. God puts up fences. God does this not because he's trying to be mean to us, but because he loves us and he wants to protect us because he knows that if we go our way, we can get really hurt. And sometimes God lets us get really hurt to learn our lessons, but then he's going to bring us back. Okay? And then the third thing you see about discipline from the Father. We're talking about the doctrine of adoption tonight, God being our Father. Third, we see the benefits of discipline. Now, it's painful, but it's for your good. And it has twofold purpose. What's, God, what's the outcome? What's the benefit? What's the outcome of God disciplining you? Number one is to make you more holy. Do you guys see that there? It says, verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 10. They disciplined us for a short time, it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. He's doing it to make us more like him, more holy. 1 Corinthians, I mean, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. God wants you to be more holy. Here's the problem we have as Christians. See if you agree with this. We want to be more happy. God wants us to be more holy. What are we often focused upon? Our happiness. Well, God may say, you know what? I don't necessarily care about your happiness. I want you to be more like me. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't want us to be happy or God doesn't want us to have joy, but it's basically saying, yeah, you want this selfish path of happiness, and God may say, you know what? I don't want you to go to that selfish path of happiness. I'd rather you go down this path of holiness, and I'm going to make sure it happens, and I may have to discipline you to make you learn that. And the second thing it does is it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And ultimately, you, you, get more, you, you end up demonstrating more of the fruit of the Spirit. You're more holy, you're more godly, you have more of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so let's recap the three big blessings of adoption so far we've seen. Number one, God predestined you before the foundation of the world to be adopted simply because He loves you and He wanted to. There was nothing in you that moved Him to do that. Number two, God is your shepherd. He's your Father. He loves you. He protects you. He guides you. He's a refuge. He's your shepherd. Number three, God may discipline you as Father because He loves you and He wants you to be more holy. But here's the fourth and final blessing of adoption of God as our Father. Because you are a child of God, he will never leave you nor forsake you, but you will inherit eternal life. Let me give you an example here. Okay, I'm going to pick on my son, Aiden. Let's say, and this is not true, but let's say Aiden went off the rails and went out and did something totally, like he spat in my face, he said, I hate you, Dad, I never want to see you again, I'm going to disown you and Mom, I'm going to go live my life, I never want to see you again. And he goes and he basically abandons the family. Would he cease being my son? 
No. Now, the fellowship in the intimacy between me and Aiden would be broken, but the relationship would not. No matter what he did, he would still be my son. Now, lest you misunderstand the analogy, God's never going to leave you. Once you're a child of his, you're always a child of his. Now, you may go off and do stupid things, <laughs> but if you're a child of God, he's never going to leave you and forsake you, and he's going to bring you back through discipline. So if you are permanently adopted into God's family, you are permanently adopted. You can never be kicked out of the family. God's never going to kick you to the curb. God's never going to disown you. God's never going to leave you or forsake you. He's going to guarantee that you have eternal life because you're in the family. Once you're in the family, you're always in the family. Okay? Deuteronomy 31.6 Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. I'm with you. I'm with you to the end. Now, Lamentation 3.31-33 is an interesting passage because it, it deals with discipline. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Now, just deal theologically with that verse. Does God cause grief? Though he cause grief, he'll have compassion. God's not going to cast you off forever. God's not going to afflict you forever. What's this saying? This is talking to rebellious Israel and by extension, a rebellious Christian. God may cause grief in your life for a season, but He will not cast you off forever. He will always show you His steadfast love. So even though you go through discipline, God always loves you and He will never leave you and forsake you. So what's your response to being adopted? Well, fall on your knees in humility and worship God because he did not have to adopt you. God could have left you a child of wrath. God could have left you a sinful orphan enslaved to your sin in the muck and mire of your rebellion and left you that way. And he would not be unjust in doing so. He didn't have to adopt you. He didn't have to choose you. He owes us nothing. So don't ever begin to think that God obligated himself to choose you, save you, adopt you. Remember I said God did it because he did it. He did it because he wanted to do it. And you may wonder, why am I adopted? Why am I in the family? Why did God choose me? And you can ask that question until you're blue in the face. And I don't, the answer is, because God wanted to. And how do you respond to that? In worship, in thankfulness, in joy, in gratitude. So here's the, the Trinity. 
The Father chose you, predestined you, adopted you. Jesus died for you, purchased you, and the Holy Spirit lives in you to give you that power and that sense that God truly is your Father. So the greatest thing we can leave tonight is knowing I'm a child of God. I'm adopted into God's family. I'm forever His child. He'll never leave me or forsake me. And as 1 John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. I pray that we would never get over being His children and that we would behold, see, get excited, be, be, be grateful that we are His children. So do we have any questions tonight? Yes, Glenn, and I'll repeat it for the face, Facebook Live and YouTube. Okay, why was Joseph not part of the tribes? Well, I don't know if the Bible explicitly says that. I think by extension, it was God's sovereign plan for his two sons to be part of the tribes. And that it's a picture of Gentile inclusion because those two boys were not full Israelites. And I think instead of Joseph being the one, it's Jacob's grandsons that are part of that. And it was, it was God's sovereign plan to do it that way. Joseph was born into the family and... Well, he was a son, but... I think Joseph had a different role in the sense that he was, when you think about Joseph, he's a picture of Christ. Joseph was mistreated. He was thrown in a prison. He came out. He was exalted to the right hand of the king, and he provided salvation for the people in a time of famine. Jesus was mistreated, died on the cross, thrown in a grave, came out, exalted the right hand of the Father, provided salvation for the people. So in redemptive history, I think Joseph has that unique role of being elevated to the prime minister of Egypt to provide salvation for his family, and that's the honor he got where his, chil his sons become part of the 12 tribes of Israel adopted by Jacob, the grandfather. That's the best answer. I don't know why, but that's just how it happened. Yeah. I'd have to go back and look at that and see why it's called the half-tribe. Yeah, I'd have to go back. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't have... I know there's some things that are stored up there, but that's not something that's coming down on my file. So That's a research thing for you, Glenn. You can come back and tell me the answer. No, I'm just... <laughs> Anything else? Any questions on Facebook? Did it go tonight? Did it glitch out? Last week it glitched out. And Okay, good. I think last week when I moved from here, down there, up here, and Trina moved the camera, something happened with our feed on the camera, and it, the audio kept going, but the video was lost. Okay, so here's where we're going. So we're talking about the order of salvation. So we talked about predestination. We talked about effectual calling. We talked about regeneration. We talked about faith and repentance. We talked about justification. We talked about adoption. Those are all things that happen. If you're a Christian, they've already happened to you. 
Now we're going to talk about sanctification next. Sanctification, we may spend a couple weeks on this. Sanctification is how do you live the Christian life now? The struggle with sin, how do you grow in Christ? How do you battle the flesh, the world, the devil? Sanctification is the process of growing to be more like Jesus. It's what we're experiencing now. Having already been saved, waiting for our final salvation, how do you live the Christian life now as as a follower of Christ? That's where we're going with sanctification. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight that we've gathered to look at this doctrine of adoption. We do want to be like John and say, Behold, see what manner of love that you have given to us, Father, that we could be called children of God. And what a great privilege it is to be called your children, to be adopted into your family, to have all the rights and privileges of being a child, an heir, to have eternal life. You'll never leave and never forsake us. You'll shepherd us and guide us. You chose us. We can cry out, Abba, Father, and know that you'll always answer us and be there for us. And Lord, when we get off track, you may discipline us, help us to receive that. And Lord, in all things, help us just to glorify you and praise you for being our Heavenly Father. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.